Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. Recently, my co-host Kevin Martin and I had a great conversation with Greg Till, EVP and Chief People Officer at Providence Health System. He discussed their four-part workforce strategy that they call the four Ds, deconstruct, digitize, deploy, and diversify. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder that I4CP's Next Practices Now conference is coming up soon, March 27th through the 30th. We've got an outstanding lineup of speakers and we'll have a record number of attendees this year as well. So please consider joining hundreds of your peer HR leaders in Scottsdale, Arizona for this unique and powerful vendor-free event. To register, just visit i4cp.com forward slash conference. Um, and without any further ado, I'm going to turn things over to you, Kevin, to introduce our special guest today. Well, I, uh, I am particularly thrilled to have been asked to be a, a guest on this particular call, Tom, because I'm a huge fan of Greg Tills. Uh, Greg, I got to know when he he served for several years on our chief HR officer board that I'm the exec sponsor of. And Greg is always, he always took me as someone who was constantly um, not only challenging the way he was thinking, but challenging the organization that he's a part of and the way they not only think, but the way they operate. And so I'm just thrilled that we have an opportunity to showcase Greg and uh, just his mindset and the and his strategic nature here. Um, and he'll tell you about Providence, et cetera. But with that, Greg, uh, welcome to the hot seat here. <laughs> this isn't a hot seat. You guys are my friends. And uh, so are all the participants on the call today. I'm incredibly excited about sharing a little bit about what we've learned in the past couple of years and what we're thinking about. Uh, hoping to bring some of the theory uh, and great ideas that we talk about a lot into practice for folks. And hopefully in chat, we'll also hear from others. I see lots of great folks from different industries and a lot of brothers and sisters from my own industry uh, in healthcare who are dealing with a lot of the same challenges and probably have innovative solutions I'd love to learn from as well. So thanks so much for having me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And, and you know, you provide some slides here, Greg, really the way we love to, the way anyone should ever look at any issue is what's, what's the macro picture? What's driving um, the situation here? And you're going to paint this really vividly for everyone. So um, why don't you start out with a little bit about Providence Health, and then you could start sharing about, you know, what's, what's driving the need for all this change that you're driving. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. We'll start with a, a macro picture and then talk really specifically about our strategy and some of the things that we're doing to kick off the presentation. Uh, don't worry, even though I'm kind of known for talking fast and using 300 slides uh, in my presentations, I think we have three or four. Uh, so plenty of time for conversations and Q&A. 
Um, this is a little bit about Providence. And I just put this up there because I'm so grateful to be part of an organization that was founded by a group of women almost 170 years ago um, that still, if we are a for-profit company, is in the uh, Fortune 150. Um, I think that there might be like, you know, three others that fit uh, one or two of those criteria. Um, Providence is one of the biggest health systems in the country. Uh, some of you may have never heard of it because most of our ministries are on the West Coast, but we have 120,000 caregivers, 52 hospitals, um, over a thousand clinics at this point. And uh, we serve um, over 1.9 um, million covered lives. We give almost $2 billion back in community benefit every year to folks who can't afford uh, care or to preventative health. And our mission is really about helping everybody in our uh, communities, especially uh, with a special attention to those who are poor and vulnerable. And we do a lot of work on the social determinants of health, health equity, um, with a keen focus on that community. So I thought I'd start in the next chart talking a little bit about the overall macroeconomic trends. Everybody on the call probably knows what this looks like, um, but some of you might not know specifically what it looks like for healthcare, which has an even uh, more dire dynamic than some of you might be facing in your industries. On the left-hand chart, um, these are some generic macroeconomic trends. You probably saw the most recent jobs report in January, uh, despite all the analysts um, predicting um, significant decreasing job gains. Um, we had a um, job gain in January that blew past expectations, over 517,000 jobs added. Um, CNN said that this was shocking, astonishing, remarkable. We're running out of adjectives to describe how stunning this job report was. Um, despite all the headlines that you see in the newspapers, what we talk about a lot internally, separations remained little changed. Um, we had about 4.1 million separations in December. It was about the same as that in January. And in 2022, overall, the U.S. saw 76 million hires, over 50 million quits, which both broke records um, at about 20% higher than a normal run rate in 2019. Um, the uh, workforce challenges are not going to stop this year, uh, despite, again, some of the headlines. You can see that in January, we had the lowest unemployment ever measured on the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States at about 3.4%. Everyone that's employable is currently, and that wants to work is currently employed. And for the first time in our country's history in the past few months, um, we have way more jobs open than current folks looking for jobs. In fact, there are two jobs open right now for every single person looking for a job, which is just crazy. In healthcare, our dynamics are even uh, more dire. You can see on the right-hand side here, this basically represents vacancy. Healthcare uh, has the highest vacancy of any um, industry outside of retail and food service. Um, job openings, right? It has the highest number of job openings right now of any industry. We have over 2 million job openings in healthcare. And we continue to add jobs or open jobs, at least, at a startling pace. In January, we added almost 60,000 new jobs. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a benchmark, prior to the pandemic and even um, into the pandemic, in 2021, the average number of jobs posted per month was about 9,000. So um, the number of postings is going bank gangbusters. We can't fill our openings because there's a massive workforce gap right now. And so that's why we have the highest vacancy of uh, any industry. Now, the job is bad overall in the U.S. workforce. It's worse in healthcare than almost any other industry. And uh, we exist on the West Coast. 
And so I put a couple of charts in here that show you a little bit more about our dynamics. And then this is really just a setup of the burning platform about why the need, in addition to COVID. Uh, you can see on the left-hand chart here, this shows um, basically per capita how many health professionals exist in each of the states on the West Coast. We're very challenged. We have some of the fewest per capita um, uh, positions like nurses. And because of that and other dynamics, um, the wage rates on the West Coast are uh, very high compared to other parts in the country. And you can see that here. Um, total expense in the Western states was up by 26 percent. Uh, in 22 versus 19. That's 26% increase in wage rates across just three years. Um, in four of the top six states uh, for the highest nursing salaries, you can see those here. Um, those are the um, four, th those are four of the seven states that Providence is in. We're also in four of the seven uh, most highly represented states, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard on the West Coast. And so this just highlights um, some of the burning platform that really necessitated a different solution uh, for Providence. Hey, Greg, so, let, me yeah. just, let me just jump in here real quick because I, every single person on this call is more than likely dealing with a major talent imperative right now of what you've just set up for your for Providence and your own industry. And so folks, I, you know, I can't stress enough how I think it's important for you to flex your minds as much as possible here because of what Greg is about to share of how they're approaching um, the realities of where their business is. And Greg, I, I know you'll temper and you'll you'll set me straight if I'm wrong here, but folks, just, just to put in perspective some of the additional burning platform here for Greg, according to the American Association of Colleges of Nurses, they're gonna need they're projecting a need for new nurses of over 200,000 more new nurses every year, just in the United States um, through 2026. But Greg, what I was astounded to learn, I found that when I was presenting to one of our other hospital uh, system members, their board of trustees this past summer, what, they, what I learned from that CEO is the, the, there's a tremendous demand for people wanting to get into nursing but there are so few nursing um, faculty that's available. And what I read is that nursing colleges turned away 80,000 applicants in 2019 and 20 just due to lack of faculty. So, I mean, you guys really have this major platform here. And I challenge others to think about it that way as well. So. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, in addition to the, in, in addition to what you just mentioned, there are all kinds of local um, rules and governance that restrict the number of nursing students that can get into those schools, even if they want to. To your point, it's not just about the nursing faculty, which is a major issue. But to put it in perspective, you know, in five years, the projections are that we're going to be two million nurses short on a baseline need of six million, which means we're not going to have thirty-three percent of the nurses that we need to provide care for our communities. We're already in a nursing shortage right now. It's gonna get way worse. Um, across industries, um, that dynamic exists um, at a little bit of a different scale. Uh, you guys probably know this, but the US birth rate hasn't been replacing the US population since the 70s. In fact, um, we had the lowest uh, workforce growth last year that we've ever measured since the BLS started. And it's gonna get worse before it gets better. In fact, in the next 10 years, the BLS projects that the workforce is gonna decline by 3% versus grow. It's the first time ever in US history since we've been measuring it, then that's happened. And it's because of those uh, birth rates. It's also because of a couple of other, of other macroeconomic factors 
Um, as the, the um, I hate to say it this way, but uh, as, as more of our aging population uh, passes away, that death rate is increasing significantly. The birth rate's decreasing significantly. And immigration that used to fill in the gap um, has basically come to a standstill through the previous administration and now through COVID. And so there's some pretty massive macroeconomic trends that have me, um, frankly, having a little sweat bead on my forehead every time you know I see an HR professional say, oh, don't worry, after the pandemic, a lot of these problems are gonna go away. Well, you're, I don't think we're reading the same kind of data because for the next 20 years, um, we're gonna have less and less talent to do more and more work. And so as my colleague at uh, Providence likes to say, uh, especially with respect to the nursing shortage, but really all of um, the, our workforce in healthcare, these are the good old days. And so, I mean, that frankly makes us want to think a little bit differently about how we do the work. You know, you can see on our next slide that we have some of the same strategies that I'm sure all of you do. We want to inspire our workforce. We want to develop uh, our workforce and accelerate that. We want to enable our workforce so that they we ease their way um, so that they can be their best every single day. And we have a lot of innovation in that space. But if we do all of that really well, better than anybody else, it's going to solve 10% of our workforce problem um, in the next five or 10 years. And so that's why we put a lot of eggs. I mean, like I said, I can talk uh, for days and days about all the innovative things that I'm incredibly grateful Providence is helping to resource in the inspire, develop, and enable space. You know, we want to um, ensure in the developed space that, for instance, we um, have uh, offered debt-free education to all of our caregivers. We want to show you that if you're at minimum wage, we can provide a six-figure uh, salary to you in less than six years with our development accelerated development programs. We have lots of great stuff there, but it's not going to solve the workforce challenge that you just outlined and that I outlined, Kevin. So that's why we need to transform the work. Uh, and that's really the topic of the conversation today. There's only one more slide and the rest of it's conversation to make sure that we're really bringing it home for folks and frankly, taking some great uh, ideas from others uh, so that we can learn from them as well. But the next slide, this slide that you have up here really talks about what we mean when we say that we wanna transform the work. Um, these these uh, four Ds are not mutually exclusive and uh, we love alliteration, so we made them into four Ds, but this is the four Ds of, of work transformation. And you know, I wanna thank um, innovators like John Bordeaux who um, recently wrote a book, Work Without Jobs. I know he's a friend of the court. Um, I want to thank innovators um, like the folks that wrote um, the Inside Gig. There are so many really great inspirational thought leaders out there. And really all we're doing is trying to take their incredible inspiration and bring it down to um, pragmatic um, examples of where we might be able to apply some of those things. And so they use um, in their book, Robin and, and John, um, different words than we do. But primarily, they're talking about a lot of the same kinds of things um, that we talk about when we say uh, talk about these four Ds. The first one is deconstruction. We ask ourselves, what parts of each role can be done differently to increase the joy of practice, add capacity, or improve quality, cost, or experience of care? It's also more affordable, but we're doing these things for our caregivers. You know, right now, healthcare has the highest burnout rate of any industry. Um, over half of our workforce says that they want to quit in the next year because of the stress and burnout right now, primarily based on capacity issues. And so when we talk about transforming the work, it's for our workforce, um, not so that we can do our uh, jobs uh, at a more affordable rate, although that is a, um, a side benefit. The second D is digitize. How can we use technology to ease the way for our caregivers to enable them to do more of what they love and are called to do? Um, just to give you a benchmark, you know, over 30 or 40% of the work that nurses currently do, and remember, I'm using nurses because they make up about a third of our healthcare workforce, 
and we're going to have one of the biggest routes in that job category. About 30 to 40% of what they do, they say is below their license, meaning somebody else could be doing it. We could automate it. We could be doing it in a different way. Um, or we could um, just take it off of their uh, off of their place uh, completely and stop doing it because it's an antiquated way of working. And so we want to digitize some of that work. We also um, want to think about deployment more effectively. You know, in um, healthcare, unfortunately, we typically across the industry have a very high rate of attrition. We have very high skilled professionals, and then we also have kind of entry level um, jobs or low skilled professionals doing a lot of the work. And so we need to think, frankly, about how we utilize uh, our workforce almost like a supply chain to ensure that we can predict the needs and that we can staff effectively to those needs in a dynamic way. And so that's really what that deployment's all about. We, there's a lot of waste um, in how we deploy our talent because we use, um, in some of our hospitals, you know, pen and paper to do nurse schedules, for instance, um, which we don't do anymore at Providence, um, but we were using five years ago. And then the last one is to diversify. Um, this isn't diversify in the typical sense, although we're very um, committed to uh, DE&I and making sure that we pr promote um, an inclusive culture where everyone feels they belong. However, this means that we want to diversify our sources of talent. We know that we're not going to have enough talent uh, based on um, the population dynamics and the development dynamics that you described earlier, Kevin. And so we need to look to new sources of talent in order to make sure that we have enough folks to care for the communities that we're in. And so just to take this one click deeper, and this is the last slide, um, on the right-hand side, you can see some examples around those four Ds and how kind of pragmatically we've um, woven some of that vision or strategy into real work. And so at the top of the, in the middle of the chart, you can see some potential components of nursing roles. The first thing that we did is to deconstruct the nursing role. Uh, we started with nursing again, because it's one of our um, roles that takes the highest amount of capability, a long time to develop, a long time to train, and we're gonna have one of the biggest gaps there. And so we basically broke the nursing role down into very small component parts. We did this first uh, during the pandemic because we just didn't have enough nurses to take care of our communities. And so we said, all right, let's 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 look at the skills, abilities, tasks that nurses do and ask how can we do those tomorrow in different ways or who could be doing those tomorrow um, that um, isn't doing that today. And frankly, we looked at our administrators that still have nursing licenses that um, we might be able to utilize. We looked at um, administrators that could be doing parts of nursing jobs like checking people in or um, checking up on patients or doing simple assessments um, because we were so short of our clinical staff. And so we, we took that opportunity to break down the nursing job into the component pieces, assessing how the work was being done, where the work was being done, and by whom the work was being done. And so that allowed us to redesign some of our work processes to match skills with tasks versus specific jobs. We haven't taken it all the way to the extreme of having only project-based work. Like I, um, but we, but that's a big uh, a big idea question we ask ourselves every day is how could we get closer to that aspiration? Um, we're using virtual work and flexible staffing models. Um, you know. Um, our clinical staff rightly asked after we sent 20,000 folks home from an administration perspective in 2019, when Providence saw the first COVID patient, um, why not us? Why can't we do some discharge uh, work from home? Why can't we provide a, a, a virtual staffing unit for nursing to ease their way? Same thing with uh, medical assistance. And so we are um, actively piloting and scaling virtual nursing units in order to offset some of the demand issues. And then of course, I said these weren't uh, mutually exclusive, but we're part of that deconstructed work can be digitized. 
you know, a lot of the work that nurses and nursing managers are doing today can be automated um, or, or um, done in different ways through digital technology. We are using technology in that middle column there to do everything hey, from- Hey sorry, Greg, sorry, yeah, yeah, before you move on to digitize the second D, on the deconstruction, I, I've shared your story that, uh, you know, we, we did a case study with you uh, when you first shared this story with us. And I know it's also in, in John and Robin's book. Um, and I've been sharing it at a lot of uh, a lot of presentations I've given to our members and, and otherwise. Um, and one of the things that struck me about it was you mentioned the administrators that still have some of them former doctor, former nursing licenses and can do some of the tasks that are in that middle box there. But also um, the uh, the simple assessment uh, temperature, blood pressure checking, and checking in on stable patients, which by definition, they're labeled as stable. Um, I found it interesting that you could also go below the nurses to maybe receptionists or whatever you might call folks in those kind of roles. And with minimal training um, during a crunch period of time, um, you know, they can do some of those tasks. I mean, we've all seen that, especially, you know, during the, the harshest times of, of COVID when hotels were first reopening, the receptionists at the hotel were taking our temperature in order to allow us into the hotel. Uh, they had very, I would assume, minimal training in order to do that with the new temperature guns that we have today. Uh, so say a little bit about that, that you you both looked at, you know, up the management chain for potential pool of talent that could, that could be deployed for some of these tasks, but also down the down the, the sort of skill chain as well. We did. I mean, you know, in, in the heat of uh, battle in January, February, in the first couple of quarters of COVID, I mean, we were taking very highly paid administrators and trying to figure out how to put them on hospital floors, right, in order to do some of the work based on that skills analysis that we deconstructed from the nursing jobs. Um, that's obviously not practical long term. However, it really made us think differently about the different components of nursing jobs that could be done in different ways or done by others, you know. Um, today, the folks that check you in can take your temperature versus having, you know, we hired hundreds of temperature checkers in our hospitals at the outset of COVID and said, oh my gosh, you know, we just added like 300 staff to our hospitals just to check temperatures. Why are we doing that? You know, that lasted for about two weeks until we figured out <laughs> the fact that we could combine that specific task into somebody else's task jar um, to help uh, ease the way of our patients and our health system. And so that, that, that created, you know, a big idea. Um, we were talking before this uh, seminar about um, some some of the big ideas. I'm not sure I'd call them vision points uh, yet, because whenever I have a vision, I like to put strategy, actions, and accountability against it. But I just call them big ideas, you know. And we we created a lot of big ideas, like, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, maybe. But what if we could turn every one of our 120,000 jobs into a gig into a gig job? You know, what if we could completely eliminate all certifications and education requirements from every single job in healthcare? Uh, what if we could completely deconstruct jobs and have people flow to the work based on the projects, um, based on their interests or skills? You know, what if we could turn our entire development system into something that develops skill stacks versus, um, you know, forcing people to go back for degree programs that are kind of antiquated, um, where maybe 20% of what they're learning is relevant to the marketplace of tomorrow? And so what, you know, the, the specific question that you asked around um, deconstructing jobs and putting um, and having administrators do some of the work that clinicians were before really helped us, frankly, it forced us to think differently about how and who was performing the work in ways that, you know, our incredibly innovative CNO, Sil Trepignier, and our administrators um, are continuing to innovate based on. You know, it basically took a lot of things we've been talking about for five or 10 years and trying to implement, but kind of slowly along the way, doing a lot of pilots, um, trying to you know have proof points, figuring out how we were going to invest, and it created immediately a change-ready environment. 
And so through kind of the, the horrendous uh, COVID situation and the chaos, I mean, it created a very healthy change-ready environment that allowed us to accelerate the pace of change and try lots of new things. You know, um, former executive here from, I think he's back at Amazon now, um, Aaron Martin, who's our, who used to be our uh, in charge of our digital strategy, brought one of their uh, philosophy was philosophies, which was fail fast. Learn to fail fast. Try lots of things, fail, admit that you failed, pick the things that worked and move on fast. Uh, don't spend two years doing a pilot to find out it really didn't work, but you wasted a lot of resources. And so we applied that concept to our workforce uh, through COVID. Hey, Greg, just curious, you know, any major strategic shift as a business requires a commensurate shift in culture and and the way leaders from a mindset and a capability standpoint need to lead in order to support that type of culture. Can you talk about any type of, it? you know, culture? What were the major cultural implications here at Providence in order to start doing what you're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there, there are three, I think. And I mean, you know, I think what makes a high-performing culture today isn't that much different than what made a high-performing culture 20 years ago. I think how we execute against those things and what's first, second, and third might be, um, you know, in different orders today. But the three things I'll say that really shine for us that are helping us, you know, frankly, retool um, and refocus our culture, but also help have, have us, has us looking at our uh, value proposition, our caregiver or our employee, we call all of our employees caregivers, our caregiver value proposition proposition a little bit differently are these three things. Number one, uh, flexibility. You know, I like to say that flexibility is the new engagement capital. If flexibility isn't part of your core value proposition for your employees, um, thank you. Um, I'll have an easier job recruiting them into Providence. Um, you know, there's lots of studies, many of them that you've uh, published at I4CP that show that folks will take a little bit, even, you know, less pay or different work um, rules for more flexibility. Uh, we don't want to pay them less, uh, but we do want to offer as much flexibility, you know, radical flexibility as possible, not just for our administrators, but for our clinicians. Every time I read an article about, you know, another company pulling people back, you know, four or five days a week, like I'm not, I'm not, you know, usually three or four days later, um, they publish another article saying, oops, sorry about that. Um, you know, uh, Tesla did that and Twitter did that. We're bringing everybody back. Oh no, sorry, we didn't mean it. Um, because they realized uh, that the culture dynamics have changed. So flexibility is one. The second one is agility. Um, how can we move fast, not spend a lot of time in decision-making? You know, I love the, the quote, you know, vision without execution is merely a hallucination. Um, there's lots of different variations of that, but eventually you gotta actually do something. That's why I picked that song, a little less conversation and a little more action. Um, if you actually start doing stuff, you can find out really quickly what works and what doesn't, and then just stop the stuff that doesn't. It's okay. Uh, no harm, no foul. So agility, I think, has risen in the priority list of what we need our cultures focused on. And then the third one that sounds kind of soft is, is collaboration. And, you know, um, a lot of the work that, that I'm talking about here today was done um, with, you know, 50 other people in the room, brainstorming, figuring out how we were going to implement it, implementing it and giving us feedback, I mean, from almost day one, our clinicians set up a daily huddle, um, just like we have in our had in our hospitals prior to COVID, on you know workforce management, on resource management because we didn't have enough ventilators, masks, or gloves, um, on you know what the what the um, COVID rates were in our hospitals and how we could um, deal with those things more effectively. You know, it's basically a stand up for 20 minutes every day, 
Um, and there were calls like a standups with 300 people on them, administrators all the way down in every hospital. And there were standups with 25 people on them dealing with specific issues. Um, you know, those helped us through the vaccination process um, and the require, you know, vaccination requirement process. And still, and we we kept some of those standups uh, still today to help us to continue to innovate and keep people aligned. And so I think those are the three things I that come immediately to mind about enhancements to culture would be flexibility, agility, and um, a better, uh, more effective, coordinated, collaborative environment. Hey, Greg, uh, before we move on to your, your other three Ds here uh, beyond deconstruct, there were a couple of questions, related ones in the chat. Um, John uh, asked, and they're, they're both around upskilling more, I would say, in the, in the medium and long term, as opposed to the story you've told so far was very much dealing with an acute issue around deconstructing the work to help with the nursing shortage. But if we look at upskilling for the medium and long term, John wondered, what are you doing at Providence to um, upskill and, and maybe even provide um, direct uh, you know, certification or, or whatever it might be for, for certain roles that you know you're going to need in the, in the coming one, three, five years. And then Marissa asked, are, are you perhaps not doing that as much internally, but through partnerships with schools, universities, um, you know, community colleges, et cetera? What's your connection with, with both the outside and the inside sources of upskilling, I guess? Uh, all the above, you know, we're, as I mentioned, we're primarily talking about the transformation of work, but we're also going all in on accelerated development. We form partnerships with folks like um, Dignity Health and Common Spirit to um, kick off a new school for health professions. We partner with organizations like Guild to offer more affordable, uh, accessible um, education to our internal folks. And we've tripled our investment in our own workforce development to, you know, as I mentioned, I'm not sure if this tagline is going to stick because it seems too long to me. But, you know, how can a minimum wage person get to six figures in six years? How can we take uh, a warehouse worker that works in another industry right now that might be getting laid off because of automation and show them a path to a six figure job in nursing or administration in less than I'll say in less than six years um, in uh, development that will pay for um, to get you there? The primary difference for us and the, the, the difference maker, you know, I, I mentioned that we're investing in partners to help the education process. Uh, that's really important in today's reality. But we also are putting a lot of our chips into developing what I called earlier skill stacks, um, identifying the skills and capabilities that people really need to do the jobs today and uh, well and, and well in the future. And um, only, you know, and only training them on how to do those things and frankly, allowing them to and identifying, in, you know, in today's world, the, the skill stacks that are needed for the specific jobs that exist or the jobs that are going to exist in the future and allowing them to pick and choose so that they can be in charge of their own development using components, using um, skills and capabilities that they gain versus, you know, degrees. I'm going to say something super crazy that um, I don't completely believe. I do this a lot. And then, um, you know, people, people give me some body blows and, but it helps us to think differently. You know, I, how much, how many of the courses or how many of the hours of your four-year degree, or, you know, I have two master's degrees and started a PhD of all that education. How, how much of it actually contributed skills and capabilities that are necessary for the job I have now and for the job I have uh, in the future. I, I'll, I would say, especially at the, at the um, for the types of jobs that healthcare has today, which are very skills and capabilities focused, um, less than 100%. I, I won't I won't give you the number that I really think, but I, less <laughs> less than 100%. But imagine if it was 20%. We wasted 80% of a person's time and money 
you know, they're spending $20,000 a year, some of them in four-year colleges. Um, and I still don't understand, frankly, why we haven't banded together and completely democratized the education system, allowing everyone to complete the, if you want to get a degree, complete the two year, the first two years online for $1 a course. You know, I mean, how different is Comms 101 at Harvard than it is um, at a community college down the street? Um, probably not that different. And do you need it for your nursing job? I don't know. And so that's sorry for the long diatribe, but um, all of that to say, we're partnering um, very heavily with uh, folks to build schools of health profession, to utilize the education system, to pay for the education for our caregivers. We don't want them to spend one dime to develop themselves. But the real future is in, is in um, I think I saw John pop up and say, you know, stacking credentials or stacking st st skills or stacking uh, capabilities. That'll, that really allows the acceleration. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm embarrassed to say six and six, because I really think it could be six and three. Um, if we get really good at stacking credentials or stacking the skills that you actually need. And oh, by the way, then you're going to be able to say, oh, those are the skills, the, the stackable skills that I need to be an HR executive or a finance executive or, you know, become a doctor. Okay, now I know what they are and I can start having development plans that contribute to the skill stack for the three or four different paths I want to take in my career versus saying, you know, now I'm going to go get the next six year degree um, because this is the specific job that that's going to help me with. Well, you've got a couple of upvotes uh, from Becky and Marissa in the chat, uh, whether it's six and three or, or six and six, they're they're thinking that it is a short enough tagline. Uh, so uh, I, I think you're onto something there. I appreciate uh, it. I'm crowdsourcing. I'm crowdsourcing taglines. Yeah. Please feel free. Feel free. Keep, keep, keep the questions coming in and the comments coming in, in the chat, folks. But for now, let's move on. So we cover the other three D's. Uh, I'm just looking at the clock. We've got 20 minutes left. So, uh, Greg, we want to hear about digitize next. Yeah, thanks. Uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity. So, I mean, Digitize is pretty simple. It's really about utilizing technology differently than we ever have. Uh, to me, AI and ML, machine learning and um, and AI, are, are uh, they were pipe dreams 20 years ago. Everyone talked about wanting to utilize them, but we weren't really using them productively or pragmatically. And today we're deploying technology in almost every aspect of our work, from, you know, assessing patients before they walk in the door to monitoring patients to helping to provide solutions to connecting with patients um, to get them to utilize their medication more effectively at home. Um, in the workforce space, we're doing that too. Um, we're using prediction models in order to staff more effectively. We know it takes uh, three months to get an experienced ICU nurse on board. Why are we waiting till one retires in order to post requisition, allowing for three months of vacancy that either needs to be filled with a more expensive um, agency person or um, that stops us from being able to provide clinical care. And so we're using a ton of um, automation and predictive modeling to staff more effectively and to post requisitions before we even have the need. Uh, we're also using smart schedules. And so, you know, in the old world, a nursing manager might uh, spend two, three hours every two weeks um, providing, uh, doing scheduling. Um, those schedules were pretty inefficient, not based on, predict, uh, on, on very good projections of um, community needs, patient acuity, volume um, demands, or uh, our caregivers' desires about the schedules they wanted to work. And so we've automated um, our scheduling process uh, with techno uh, a technology that we hope uh, one day to, to be a revenue source for us um, to help us to, to build the most efficient schedules but at the same time, build schedules that our nursing leaders really want. Um, and it's also allowing us to look at scheduling differently. I talked about radical flexibility before. 
you know, typically in healthcare, our schedules for nurses are 12 hours, three days, or 12 hours, four days, if you want to work a day of overtime. That's incredibly taxing, um, especially as our nurses age or if you have a disability. It's also not pragmatic for a working mom or dad who wants to be a nurse. And so this automated scheduling system that we have in place now allows us to do a lot of really cool things, including deploy more effectively. But it allows us to have four-hour schedules and six-hour schedules and almost allow nurses to choose their own. We're not completely there yet, but um, that's part of the radical flexibility that we're talking about is letting everyone choose the exact schedule that they want to make, uh, they want to work. Uh, we're also um, looking at different ways to automate to increase capacity by automating, you know, sitting and automating recommendations for our uh, for our nursing leaders and um, automating automating scribing, which takes a lot of time for nurses and doctors today, um, you know, entering data into the electronic medical record. And then we're also digitizing um, to deploy our workforce more effectively. And so this is basically, you know, in the deconstructed role, we're asking about what parts of the role can technology help us to do more effectively? What parts of every process can technology help us to do more effectively? And, you know, one of my friends, a partner from McKinsey likes to say, you know, everyone's worried about, uh, uh, automation taking over your job, it's not going to take over your job. It's just going to take away the dull and the dangerous. And that's not thats not the holistic picture, but that's kind of what we're doing with automation is trying to figure out how to make sure that we take part of that 40% of work that nurses really don't want to be doing anyway um, and automating as much of that as possible. There's also, Greg, you know, it's such a, an interesting opportunity for everyone to learn and borrow from different industries. You know, um, one of the things that we've been seeing for over a decade is just you know, <clears throat> greater desire for control. And what we know for sure from all the data is predictability when it comes to scheduling is so critical for certain people, especially, you know, that are dependent on, you know, their paycheck, living paycheck to paycheck, if you would, and empowering them to actually make decisions. And you know, I just wonder, are you learning from other sectors like retail that might be allowing people to actually swap shifts? with someone who is equally certified or, or trained in a given role, but they can switch without having to get a manager approval or doing things like that. How are you thinking about that? We are, you know, we want to be the best in healthcare, but we also want to make sure that we're looking to other industries that frankly have um, different environmental circumstances or they're just ahead of the pack. You know, we're very heavily regulated it's impossible, at least right now, to deconstruct the jobs completely because they require special certifications in a lot of cases. But we're we're looking to other industries that don't have some of those barriers to ask ourselves how we can push the envelope. And so, you know, IBM is a great example. Nick, I know uh, Nickel, the CHRO there, of um, deploying a pretty great um, internal talent mobility system um, that's kind of akin to stack to the skill stacks that I'm talking about now. Um, we have friends in supply chain companies that are helping us to think about how we can apply apply supply chain tactics to our workflows. And so, um, you know, one of the things that makes Providence uh, pretty innovative is, you know, 10 years ago, our CEO had a vision and um, started uh, both lifting the most innovative up from within healthcare, but then hiring lots of folks from outside of healthcare. You know, almost every administrative position that reports to our CEO is from outside of healthcare. Um, our chief digital innovation officers from Amazon, our CFOs from um, T-Mobile. I could go down the list. Um, I'm, I'm from the big bad defense industry. I like to joke around and say we were saving lives in different ways uh, over there. Um, but, you know, lots of creative thoughts from different industries. And then I try to stay as networked and do stuff like this in order to maintain those connections with folks 
who have really creative ideas. We might not be able to implement holistically or today, um, but can help us to modify our vision points or our big questions. And so that's a really, a really good insight, Kevin. Thank you for that. You know, you, Greg, I, you've, you've said so much in such a little bit of time here. And I think this slide is, is probably so helpful to so many people on this call. One of the things I remember you sharing before, and if we can get to the diversify here, one of the things that I remember you sharing back with the CHRO board was a model that we have at I4CP, the talent ecosystem integration model. And you said, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. You almost used it as an overlay when you start thinking about, you know, different sources of talent. Can you tell people how, you know, diversifying sources of skills and capabilities is fitting into your vision here? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And kudos to I4CP for that model. And, you know, when we talked a couple of years ago and um, were inspired by John's work and your work and others, it, it made a big difference in helping us to um, codify, you know, or, or put together a lot of different components of strategies that we had in the past. And one of the biggest things that it got us thinking about was how to diversify our workforce. You know, um, there's lots of things that we're thinking about in this space, including how to make family members uh, caregivers. Um, but the really exciting thing that we're moving towards, um, two things. Uh, the first one is I mentioned virtual work earlier and virtual nursing units. Well, that's not only, you know, more flexible and uh, um, allows us to do things more effectively um, for our patients and for our current caregivers, but it also allows us to open up access to markets that, you know, on the chart earlier, I showed that on the West Coast, we have a, a massive talent drought compared to the middle of the country. Well, you know, some of our um, our states are nursing compact states, which means if you have a license in, I don't, I don't want to make it up and have my CNO yell at me, but if you have a license in state A, uh, then you can uh, perform um, care in, uh, in state B. And so with that in mind, you know, we're taking our virtual nursing units today that are in Texas supporting a Texas hospital and asking ourselves, what if we could do that from Alabama or another state um, that, that doesn't have the same talent gaps that we do on the West Coast, not just for nursing talent, but for medical assistants, administrators, and everything else. The second really crazy um, idea that I'll share, I'm not sure if I've shared more than two crazy ideas, but another crazy or big, uh, crazy idea that we're thinking about is, what if we started with the concept that every job is a gig, a gig job? What if we have no more employees? What if everyone gets to choose their own shift, um, their own workplace, their own boss at their own pay rate? And um, we're pushing the envelope on that. Uh, today, we're, we're deploying pieces of it. You know, we're allowing people to choose some of their own schedules. We're partnering with an external vendor called uh, CareRev to basically create a gig economy of external caregivers that can supplement our internal caregivers using the same scheduling technology so that we can fill in gaps externally that we can't meet with our internal workforce, allowing folks to pick their own shifts at their own pay rates um, with, with our external folks now. And so we're merging our technology to frankly blend the external uh, talent base with the internal talent base um, to do a lot of these things in this chart that you're showing uh, right now. And, um, you know, one of the inspirational things that, um, that we took from this chart was the gig workers and freelancers. Healthcare has had that for a long time, but typically our gig workers and freelancers, you know, our agency traveling nurses make two times what our current FTEs do. And during the pandemic um, and the workforce crisis, even more specifically last year, they at one point were making three times as much as our internal workforce uh, were. 
And so, you know, a lot of healthcare care systems ran out and said, We're, we want to go out and create our own agency so that we eliminate some of the, the middleman's cost. And I'm sorry for my healthcare peers. We are also looking at that as one potential strategy. But for me, you know, whenever people use that as their only strategy, I say, man, the 1980s called and they want their strategy back. Um, the, the new strategy is trying to figure out how to create more flexible gig economy work for your internal caregivers and for your external uh, community members so that you can have a, a, a system that takes advantage of the, the talent holistically um, versus, um, uh, you know, decreasing a little bit of uh, the agency slash travel nursing cost by starting your own. And it's actually not too far. It's, it's one step in the right, in the right direction, uh, basically creating um, your own float pool using internal and external talent. You know, just listening to you, Craig, I mean, it, it, what you're talking about is a whole different and, and what we see is a, a different twist on the term sustainability. Sustainability in so many contexts is viewed as just environmental sustainability. But what you're talking about is for Providence to sustain as an organization, you have to what, what has to be true in order for that to happen. And you're looking at the reality of the talent situation, the economics, etc and saying these are the things in order for us to sustain that have to be true and you're and, and, and you're really going deep and disaggregating those it's a it's an important question everyone should be asking but it takes tremendous discipline it does and it's you know we're, we're for the last couple of years we've been talking about sustainment but really it's also about thriving i mean these these strategies some of them are based on helping the healthcare industry out of the hole that we're in right now. I mean, almost every nonprofit health system lost a ton of money last year um, on the market and through operations based on labor cost increases and lots of other things. And so we are talking about sustainment, but this is also about thriving in the next new economy and the next new set of workforce challenges. And, you know, someone asked a really great question in chat and we're, we're, we're also struggling through this ourselves to think about it, about how do you maintain your culture, your esprit de corps, your values, if everyone's a gig worker. And so when I say, can everyone be a gig worker? Um, you know, to me, that's like a, a fence post. That's a big idea that helps us to think about radical flexibility and new and different ways. It doesn't necessarily really mean at least for the next five years that, you know, we have 120,000 workers today and we're going to put them all on the street and they're all, um, um, free agents. Um, but it was, it, what it does mean is, you know, what are the benefits of the folks that like to work at companies like Uber? I mean, they're basically um, freelance gig workers. Um, they like to get paid every day after they do a day's work. Can we implement a pay system for especially lower paid caregivers like MAs and CNAs where they get a paycheck at the end of every day for the amount of work that they did? Um, they also can work their own hours. Can we do radical flexibility in our scheduling so that our nurses can and MAs can choose their own schedules? And so it's more about how do we mix um, internal talent availability with external talent availability to ensure that we can fill all the shifts and don't suffer from a 20% vacancy rate um, that doesn't allow us to care for our community members. And so um, we do have a lot of work, you know, our mission and our values are at the core of who we are. Um, and um, so it, it's pro there's probably not a day, at least in our near term future, where we really don't have any uh, caregivers internally. It's really about applying the concepts of the big ideas um, to make work as um, caregiver friendly and um, community friendly as possible. Hey, Greg, we've just got a couple of more areas we want to explore with you with very limited time here. But just curious, how did you approach your union 
um, and your union-based workers with this concept here? Well, I mean, we, we pilot a lot of things in uh, areas that are not organized uh, to see if we to see if it works. And then if it does work, um, we get the users, uh, the folks that it benefits. Remember, for us, all of this is to benefit our caregivers. It's to increase capacity. It's to lower their stress and burnout by ensuring that we um, have more capacity to serve them and, and bring the joy of practice back into healthcare. And so the, the second thing that we do after we pilot it and have some success is we ask our nurses to be our biggest advocates with their counterparts um, to help them understand how it's increasing capacity, bringing joy back uh, in work, helping them to spend more time in clinical care with their patients. And we utilize the ongoing relationships that we have uh, with labor. You know, we're a system of separate employers. Um, and so not every relationship is equal across our family of organizations. Um, but we have a lot of really productive relationships with labor because we're trying to get to the same outcomes. We want productive work environments for our caregivers. We want to um, create better, uh, more healthier context for those caregivers. We want to contribute to bigger societal change to make sure that we create a healthier society so that we can improve the health of the communities that we're in. So many of the outcomes um, with organized labor are the same outcomes that the health systems are trying to achieve. Some of the methods and ideas about how to get there are different. And so we typically try to partner with them over the long term, talk about the outcomes that we're trying to create, and then figure out how much flexibility we can work into uh, into the system um, that we currently have. You know, none of this is going to mean that we need less less, less workers, um, less caregivers um, providing patients for caregivers. If we're doing this right, um, we're expanding the workforce, not not detracting it. And so a lot of some of the typical barriers that would come up. Um, through conversations and with an outcomes focused are able to be alleviated, especially with a focus on the nurses or on the clinicians themselves. It's, we're not doing this to benefit the company. We're doing this uh, to benefit our communities and our workforce. Well, the, the, uh, the chat says it all. I mean, there's so much conversation going on, Greg. So this topic and what you're sharing is really resonating with the audience. Now we're going to have you put your advisor hat on and you're going to provide guidance to the audience if they want to start now or how to you know where should they start how should they approach this if they want to go down the path you are i mean i i give i give everybody on this call because they're all i4cp members or interested parties a lot of credit they're probably doing a lot of this already um what i'll say a couple of things that have helped us to be more successful and help to accelerate change than maybe you know where where we failed in the past are number one um, it sounds so basic, but you have to be able to articulate the compelling need. Um, I know it sounds crazy. Everyone feels a workforce crunch right now. Something like 90 CEOs say workforce is their top challenge or priority, but you need to be able to articulate the need in a way that doesn't have people thinking that just giving people more hugs or recognition is going to work. Um, that's not going to fill the workforce gap. And I don't, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, um, um, even though a lot of our efforts are focused on providing a healthier environment for our workforce and inspiring them more, but it's not going to fill the workforce gap. And so you need to be able to articulate um, the real issues and the real dynamics that are at play. So people just don't rely on the same 80% of the solutions that we've been deploying for the last 20 years, um, which is kind of the, the knee-jerk go-to. Secondarily, I think we've got to be really good as HR professionals, as business professionals, to articulate the outcomes that we think that we can drive for our communities or customers, for our employees or caregivers, and then for the business. I don't think we do a very good job of it in HR, talking about the outcomes that we're gonna um, create 
in ways that our business leaders or our clinicians or um, you know are the most influential stakeholders, our boards can really understand and can get behind. Um, I love uh, talking about uh, culture like uh, Kevin does. I love I love Kevin's book. Um, and one of the things I really love about it is that he talks about how great cultures lead to high performance in ways that business leaders can understand. We need to be able to articulate the outcomes in ways that business leaders can understand. And then um, execute and execute the hell out of it and claim success. You know, I think HR a lot of times um, is in the weeds of so many difficult processes. Um, we don't come up for air and say, we said we were going to do this. We tried it. It didn't work. We stopped it or we tried it. It worked. It, um, and here's the result that we said we were going to get that we measured. Check out this result that we said that we were going to get that we measured. Um, let's go do some more of that. And so it's so it's it's super simple. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of secret sauce to it. Uh, but I mean, we, we, we have to take our HR hat and put our business hat on first in order to articulate the need, claim the outcomes, commit to it, go do it and celebrate it um, in ways that other stakeholders like your CEOs and your boards can really get excited and get behind. Um, every time one of my own caregivers comes and says, Greg, I couldn't get investment for this development plan or my resources got cut for this. Um, I, you know, I either say use it as a creative opportunity to do something differently, or did you really sell it as effectively as you think you did? Because for the most part, if you're telling the business that you can uh, radically change the outcomes that you're achieving for your customers, your communities, or your caregivers, um, very rarely um, have I been in a situation where we've been told, no, don't do that, even if it takes a little bit more investment. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Uh, registration is open for our Next Practices Now conference in late March this year in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it's an annual tradition that we're super excited to be back to after two years of being virtual only. It is both in-person and virtual, so if you can't make it in Scottsdale, you do have that other option, and there'll be a lot more information coming on the speaker lineup very soon. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.